Good afternoon. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. I'm Zizi. I'm Maggie. I'm Claudia. I'm Nikki. And on today's show, we'll be talking about the latest in the Russia spy scandal. Yes, Australia has finally expelled two Russian diplomats on accusations of spying on Australia. We'll also be looking, doing a follow-up on the Sunrise investigation after a series of protests uh, that occurred after some insensitive topics. Um, as well, we'll be taking a look at the failed plan to push through the corporate taxes in the Senate. And of course, we'll be having head-to-head where we'll, have, we'll take a look at current topics and trends for inspiration and find the perfect comp- competition for political figures to battle it out. Um, and we'll be working out who would be better at cheating. But as always, we want to hear your thoughts. Send us a tweet at at SinRepresent or follow us on Facebook at fo- facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. We're going to be talking about the recent decisions by uh, Foreign Minister Julie Bishop to expel two Russian diplomats from Australia. Uh, She made the announcement on Wednesday um, and she gave them just a week to leave uh, the country. They've been identified as being undeclared intelligence officers, which I believe is diplomatic speak for spies. Um, (laughs) And the reason why we're making this big jump is is actually a, a larger international coordinated um, uh, movement to get rid of Russian diplomats um, in solidarity with the actions by the England after an attack on a double agent, former double agent, um, in Salisbury, England. So it is quite an interesting event. I mean, it's got a lot of Cold War espionage, you <laughs> know, spy novel thriller elements, but also this is quite a dramatic like statement by a lot of countries that they do not condone actions by Russia um, to assassinate, you know, citizens of foreign nations. So what do we think about the fact that uh, all this is, which, like you said, is quite a big coordinated action, is taking place before police investigations on the Salisbury attack have even really gotten underway? I think it's kind of been a sort of standoff between the West and Russia because I think the West is trying to kind of indicate to Russia that they uh, condemn these so-called draconian policies. And I, I feel like it's it's been a bit of a, a hasty sort of uh, movement rather than something that has been careful and gone through police investigation. And I think by now, Julie, Giller, um, no, Julie Bishop said there are now 26 countries that have expelled about 150 Russian diplomats. So I think it's it kind of is, it was like a snowball effect. It kept getting bigger and bigger and there was no stopping it, I think. I actually, while the police investigation hasn't been completed, I think the intelligence operation definitely has. Very soon after the attack, uh, Foreign Minister for um, the UK, Boris Johnson, was outlining that they did suspect that Russia was involved. I mean, this is a former Russian double agent, um, and it was quite like an aggressive attack. Now, and the reason why the police operation hasn't been finished, because the nerve agent, which was used, which was called... um, it's Novikov, it, it Novichok. Sorry, it's quite a deadly agent, and not only were the, the targets um, put into a severe medical condition, um, I believe they're still in a coma. But um, first responders also had very dramatic reactions. We had one police officer who was first on the scene also being hospitalised and in a very severe condition, and then a number of other first responders, you know, suffering from like itchy eyes and vomiting and just general nausea. This was quite a dangerous thing to use, and they're still cleaning up the the crime scene. Like, yeah, I guess the fact that they're still cleaning it up is what sort of sticks out to me, though. Um, that 
you know, it's sort of still in that uh, fevered state after such a dramatic event. Uh, it seems interesting to me that the international community is taking cues from Boris Johnson as opposed to from any sort of more official source. I mean, obviously he, is a, an, he is an has official an official source. position, but also has a political position. Um, yeah, I just think it's interesting how uh, people have been willing to just accept you know, that read of the situation straight away and run with it before there's been any sort of official confirmation. There hasn't also been, like, a clear denial from Russia. Like, they have denied it, but at the same time, it was not um, as convincing. It seemed to be more along the lines of, well, you can't prove it, rather than... um, And I heard one of the... um, It was an ambassador to Russia, an Australian ambassador to Russia... Um, on the radio, I'm not sure if he's one of the ones who've since been expelled, uh, who came out and was basically like, um, yeah, look, we didn't do it, and yes, we may be the only people with this poison, but can you prove that no one else has stolen it from us? Like, it was so... It seemed to be so that sort of legalese of, like, you know that what I'm saying isn't true, but I'm saying it anyway sort of thing. I think also the fact that it was a known Russian agent that no one really has official access to, and it's like a Cold War era nerve toxin. And I believe back then when he sort of became a double agent, there were threats against him for having, you know, being able to do this and saying that there will be consequences for it. So it's, yeah, like you guys say, not a big jump to assume that. So I think not waiting for a police investigation to take action is warranted um in this circumstance um i think also like i think the international community does need to take a firm stance i mean you hear a lot of people who are russian uh dissidents who have gone overseas who are like sincerely fearing for their lives i mean russia has a history of poisoning people who have betrayed them and people who stand against putin and i think that the fact that it occurred on international soil rather than while in russia sets a dangerous precedent that we need to take a firm stance on. Yeah, absolutely. I um, I definitely agree with what you're saying. I think the element that's more surprising to me is, I guess, um, the fact that there would be a bureaucratic reason for not going ahead yet and for waiting for due process if people wanted to, which really seems to indicate that a lot of countries are really willing and actually really wanting to take steps against Russia, mm. potentially for independent reasons. Well, I guess this raises an interesting thing about what countries wouldn't want to make a move. And there was some uh, debate in the White House over whether or not to do, to expel diplomats. Do you guys have the story on that? Wait, which country, sorry? America. In the US. Oh, yes. Um, I do think that, you know, along with Australia, there's the kind of wall of the West. The US has joined in that as well. And I think that they're all just trying to take a, a stand against um, Russia. And as Julie Bishop said, um, we're always ready to defend our country, our people, against any kind of attack, including the cyber attack. As we do in all embassies across the world, we are looking out for our diplomats. So I think the US has taken a similar stance. Yeah, but there was some tension between what is seen as a very pro-Putin uh, White House administration and the State Department, which actually made the action to expel diplomats and we're not exactly sure how much authorization they got from the no, White House. we did hear that Trump called Putin um, in response to his election and win congratulated and congratulated him. him against the advice of, uh, I guess, several advisors. The so, State Department. Um, I guess that shows that there is at least some division between uh, those two groups in terms of the approach to Russia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I believe Trump himself has 
hasn't actually, you know, said anything about the expulsion of no, the diplomats, yeah, right? So, yeah. I guess something else I found really interesting is um, Little Old New Zealand, which is where I'm from. <laughs> there was an article about how um, Jacinta Ardern really condemns what happens and would expel Russian spies, except she couldn't find any in the country. <laughs> so. There's really no spy Russian spies in New Zealand? I mean, yeah, that really shows how much of a world player we are <laughs> when it yeah. comes to things like that. Right on top of the hierarchy. <laughs> so, yeah. I suppose that is... That is very... It's a good thing, I think. Yeah, but also I mean, either she's harbouring the Russian spies that are actually there in huge numbers, or they really aren't <laughs> Part any. of me feels like New Zealand hasn't looked hard enough for the Russian <laughs> spies as well. Like, you know, maybe there's one just, like, you know, camping out in the wilderness, you know, having a nice time. Maybe, you know, Lord of the Rings tour or something. <laughs> you know, they just haven't looked hard enough for the Russian spies. Um, well, of course, like this could have very interesting repercussions for the upcoming World Cup. I don't know if you guys are soccer fans. No, um, actually, this is one of the only reasons I've been paying any attention to the <laughs> soccer recently. Um, so, just to clarify, the UK have confirmed they will pull out. And there are a number of other countries who have threatened to or will. And then I think there are several countries who have condemned that and said they're definitely not pulling out of the World Cup. Is that right? Well, I... So just to clarify, when we say pulling out of the cup, they mean official representation oh, yeah, right. at the the actual... The teams will be still competing, oh, right, still sorry, attending. Pulling out their officials. Yes. Supposed to the team. Um, yeah. I think there would be riots in England if they did not send <laughs> a team. But, um, yeah, so there's been a lot of... Uh, I guess this is in the whole line of sports diplomacy, whereas, like, do you send your athletes and your government representatives to these events when you know that they are so clouded in, like heavy political debates and the um, Australian Football Federation is actually talking to the, the uh, foreign, de- foreign Affairs Department or DFAT um, about whether or not Australia will still be sending representatives. I think this is just like another line of the whole how do you deal with Russia whether on the political arena or in the sporting field, because Russia has its history of um, being a bit controversial. You know, in the Olympics, they couldn't... Sorry, in the Winter Olympics, they couldn't compete as a Russian team. Mm. They had to compete as, like, an official team allied with Russia or whatever the title was. Oh, really? Yeah. Why was that? And they were forced to dress in all grey or something. Yeah, they weren't allowed to wear official colours because um, of the doping scandal that was revealed... Okay, so there's. I didn't know that was what the response was. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so they couldn't, and I don't believe the Russian anthem was played if any of them won medals. So it's like that's a really weird response, don't you think? That rather than being like, well, these athletes have a doping issue, it's like, well, this country officially will exclude, but they're still really competing. We just won't award their country for it. I think it's because it was like a state-sanctioned sort of doping thing. That's why the country itself is being punished. Rather than the athletes athletes that were coerced into it. Yeah, the ones that weren't involved were still allowed to compete because I feel it would be really sad if they were training for it and they were not, you know, associated with that at all. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I guess. And then when there was the Sochi Winter Olympics, there was all those issues around, like, anti-LGBT things then, and then there was controversy over Russia getting the World Cup again. So, yeah, it seems like every time... Every time Russia (laughs) comes on stage, some sporting event happens... Yeah. So we'll have to watch to see if, you know, the Australian team comes with Julie Bishop or if they go solo to um, Russia in the next World Cup. 
But yeah, as always, we want to hear what your thoughts are on this issue. So don't forget to send us a tweet to at sinrepresent or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash sinrepresent. Before we jump into the next section, we'll just like to do an acknowledgement of countries. So um, here at Sin, we acknowledge and pay respect to the owners of the land, um, the House of Sin and Studio Stands On, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. Sin also acknowledges and pays respect to the elders and traditional owners of the lands our content reaches as well as the radio stations we broadcast from across the country so i suppose that is um before our next segment which is about the sunrise sort of segment on covering i believe it was a talk segment where um a panel of white uh professionals and like experts were talking about um essentially the removal of um, indigenous kids from families for the reason of protecting them and things like that and there were some pretty uh, extreme comments being made so we've got a little clip here about some of the comments that were said so we're going to play that for you right now adopt at risk aboriginal children oh, of course it's a no-brainer as far as i'm concerned <clears throat> you know we can't have another generation of young indigenous children uh, being abused in this way and this conspiracy of silence and this fabricated pc outlook that you know it's better to leave them in this dangerous environment i mean it's just crazy to even contemplate that people could be arguing against this yeah. i mean we have a responsibility So that was the clip that actually sparked the whole controversy. The discussion did start um, after a very um, serious case, uh, a revelation that in Tennant's Creek there was an incident of really severe um, child abuse. Um, before we get into the details of it, we should also um, talk about uh, if you are feeling um, at all alarmed or upset by the content that we're talking about, you can contact Beyond Blue on 1300 22 Three six or kids helpline on one eight hundred five five one eight hundred or of course lifeline on one three one 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 four because and, and I just say that because the what kind of sparked the sunrise story was the revelations that child services failed to protect um, a toddler who was um, raped in Tennant's Creek in the Northern Territory. Um, it's a really heartbreaking story and it's really mm. sad. But I, that being said. I think how Sunrise covered it was quite appalling. Yeah, absolutely. And to sort of just um, make a comment on um, what Maggie said before, like uh, they may have pitched them as white experts, but the people that they got on the show are actually not experts in the area sort of by any stretch of the imagination. Um, Mm. One of them being Prue McSween, who's primarily known for making controversial comments about race and Islam in the media. And that was her that you just heard. I think... I think it's a really sensitive and difficult issue to kind of fix and kind of talk about, but I definitely agree what happened in Northern Territory was awful, but the way that they presented and talked about was, I don't know, really bad as well, but I think that it's important that just because this one incident happened in the Northern Territory, that you don't just suddenly claim that the neck, the, the solution is to have a quasi second stolen generation, like round two, do you know what I mean? And I feel like... Th- you know, they say that they're going to go save children from these abusive homes, but I, I worry that what's going to happen is they, the, the the lines get blurred and they just kind of start gathering up all Indigenous children, 
without really a proper criteria of what they consider abusive and like um they start you know taking kids when they wouldn't take those kids if they were in a different household of a different culture of a different race they kind of just targeting that one demographic that's what i fear but i do believe that you know what happened in the northern territory cases of that severity definitely should be intervened well i think the the problem with how they covered this is that instead of contacting an expert like we mentioned they specifically went to someone who is known for making controversial exactly. um top, uh conf- Comments. Comments. (laughs) That's what I was looking for. Uh, So Prue McSween, as you mentioned, has a history of saying, you know, racist racist and, um, like, anti-immigration comments. Like, they brought her on the show knowing that she would say something that would stir up audiences as opposed to actually taking a really detailed look at what is a very complex issue in the Northern Territory um, about how Child Protective Services is administered and how it could have, you know, the effects of racial bias in the system. I think also the lack of diversity on the panel is kind of an issue here. Like, not saying that there shouldn't be any white people on the panel, but the fact that they didn't get an opinion from someone who maybe is from that area or at least of an Indigenous or slash Aboriginal background would have given, you know, a, a deeper insight to how to solve a very kind of, as Zizi, you said, kind of complicated, intricate um, issue. And it, 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 it doesn't, you can't use a blanket solution for this kind of issue. Absolutely, and it seems like there were two other um, issues with the way they handled the reporting of that outside of just their choice of panellists, in that um, they had uh, footage used in the segment that was not actually their own footage, that was like sort of artistically blurred, um, that was actually footage from an Indigenous documentary about, or I'm not sure what the documentary was about, but that bit of footage was a child getting some kind of health treatment. It was about rural um, doctor's services yeah, and it was the, the children in the that were displayed in the background, they were getting skin checks yeah. for like actual diseases and it was like a really feel good story about improving the community there and Sunrise has just taken it and thrown it in the back and just, you know, casted it as a way to like promote their idea yeah absolutely and that was the reason i think in the end they were forced to pull the footage but the other thing that they mishandled as well was stating that um white parents are not allowed to adopt indigenous children that it has to be either family or an indigenous um adopter which is not true and apparently out of indigenous children that are adopted three out of four are adopted by caucasian parents so there was just misinformation on so many Mm. levels and it's insane that this got through which really makes you think like they must have really thought the ratings on this would be so worth it to pull a stunt, a stunt like this. on that level. Mm. That which really makes you think, like, about the culture of talking about Indigenous issues in Australia. Like, why is it something that really just gets those ratings so quickly? Maggie, what do you think? I think a lot of it is, you know, like it is a really hot issue. Like, I don't want to put it that way, but um, contentious. Yeah, exactly. It's how you get, like, the ratings. But I feel like maybe the a part of it, like, I want to be a bit more optimistic and say a part of it was naivety and ignorance, and it wasn't malicious. How they just didn't know and assumed the worst, which is terrible, but not as terrible as intentionally trying to portray um, you know, like, Indigenous people in a bad light to get the views. But I think <sighs> it, it, it's it's not that it was malicious, it was that they were doing it yeah. not caring about the repercussions. Yeah. And I think when you do book controversial commentators to talk about these kind of issues, you are kind of 
poking them into making something that will grab headlines. Mm. I mean, of course, Sunrise also hired um, Pauline Hanson before she was elected back to the Senate. Yeah, um, but sort of in the run-up to the election, which was it, controversial. No, it was even before the election had even oh, been yeah, announced. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, like, the question of whether that was a legitimate thing to do to pay someone to be on television when the election was coming up mm. as well was an issue. Uh, yeah, I think it doesn't seem to me like uh, Sunrise has a particular bias in any direction and they have run to their credit like programs on indigenous issues Mm. that were completely fine before but i think it's just clear that they will do anything to get that controversial segment i think it's all well and fine to have a segment on this issue and even if it was a naive mistake to go about it the way that they did the problem that i had with it was the hiding of the protesters Mm. because that shows that they know what they did wrong, but they're still trying to cover it up and they're still trying to say that we are in the right for what we did. At least if it was a genuine mistake and they didn't kind of look ahead and see the uh, repercussions of it, they would accept the protest and be like, okay, we messed up. We do understand that there's a different perspective on this. But the fact that they kind of hid that with a with a muted background and like covered it all up, I think that's really poor behaviour and a poor way to react to what they said. Yeah, and I think that the background that they chose to use to replace the actual footage of what was going on with Behind. the protests was deliberately as well designed to mislead people by looking like it was the normal street outside, um, which I think is the next level wasn't just like, oh, we're covering this up because it's not appropriate to have a protest happening in the background of our show. It's like we really want people to think this is not happening, mm. which was really disturbing Well, I think yeah. the argument that they pushed forward when questioned about their choice to hide the protesters was that they... Oh, offensive signs. Yeah, offensive signs and that they were a morning show, which a part of me does understand. Really? Like, protesters do have some controversial signs on there because... It didn't appear to be any in this case, though. But this is a controversial segment, so why can't they be controversial exactly. signs they, in they the background? They weren't covering controversial topics at that point. They were no. covering, you know, like, where's the cheapest place to of buy course, your groceries? Of course, that particular that, segment sure. was controversial. <laughs> yes. And if they're allowed to voice their controversial opinion... People in the background should also be able to co- voice yeah. their controversial opinion, even if it comes in the in the form of kind of contentious signs as mm. such. Mm. I guess something I found interesting is like within this whole thing, afterwards they did try to sort of um, calm it over by having an indigenous sort of panel come on, and that was a lot more informative and more balanced discussion. But they never actually formally apologized for the incident, so it was more so how do we get this to pass and have people not get angry at us rather than how do we actually own up that we made yeah. a mistake in mm. this instance. So I think. I think even now as... So the reason that we're still talking about this story um, as the actual sort of um, original incident happened on March the 13th, I believe, is because recently there is investigations going on into Sunrise by the Australian Communications and Media Authority to see if um, Sunrise actually breached the um, industry code of practice in how they sort of covered this issue. So, I don't know, it's... Yeah, interesting. There's yeah. so many layers to what's happening as well. I guess there's so many different points at which they slipped up on this that it's hard to know what they'll get caught up on. Mm. I I feel like they're not really sorry, to be honest, if they have, one, covered up the protesters and, two, haven't issued an apology by now. They're kind of doing the whole, I'm sorry if you feel that way kind of thing. I feel mm. like that's the way that they're going about it. So, yeah, I don't really... I kind of condemn how they're going about it. I also, like, don't see how the investigation will change... Sunrise's approach to controversial segment, controversial commentator, you know, they they want the most, um, you know, out there 
kind of ratings and to do that you need to have out their personalities on it and so they will probably continue to bring in Mick Sweeney and you know uh, I think it was also Ben Forden who was on the show oh uh, yeah the uh, yeah. other person yeah um they'll continue to bring in those characters because <laughs> they are entertaining to their audiences mm. so I don't see mm. how the, an investigation will change the inherent like impulses and like kind of standard practice within Sunrise Hmm. I wonder if there's been any drop in ratings or would it just have just gone up? I think it would have gone up. That would not have gone down at all. Because people watch things they hate too. Like I would never normally watch Sunrise and I've seen this segment how many times now. Like, (laughs) so, I mean, it's a, it's kind of a shrewd strategy. It's just also, I guess, just incredibly depressing to see how, you know, it's always the most vulnerable people in Australia that become the target of these kinds of situations because they have the least capacity to fight back. And honestly, people watch things that they hate just as much as they think that they love. It's always the things that are in between that don't really have much kind of controversy or flesh to them that no one really watches. I feel like this would have definitely boosted the ratings. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure like everyone who sits there when Pauline Hansen comes on fairly regularly isn't sitting there saying, oh, I, I love Pauline Hansen. There's no, but they're watching it because they hate, hate her. her, but they want to critique what she says to support their hate. Mm. What will she say next? Yeah. I think exactly. is why people tune in. That just seems very Trump as well. It's just, I just hate how it seems like the culture seems to be turning towards that. Like, if you can say something extreme and then take it back or not own up to it or just pretend it didn't happen, it's going to be fine in the That end. is a very common thing that happens in America, isn't it? That, like, very famous people just say whatever they want and then they don't apologise and then it just gets raining. It's well, just I think here yeah. as well. It's, it's, it's becoming more common here too, that's what I'm I saying. I think we've always had shock jocks. It's just now mm-hmm. that they're on TV more often they're yes. getting Maybe worse. Maybe that's the culture. Yeah, getting I think that's an day. interesting thing as well that we're seeing more of this sort of reactionary event sneaking into uh, mainstream, family-friendly mm-hmm. programming that's maybe like supposed to be centre-ish or pseudo-apolitical mm. um, is the more worrying trend. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of calls from both sides of politics for bias in the ABC, which is supposed to be the most politically neutral. Um, yeah, I think that we've always had those like hard left, hard right commentators, but it's uh, upsetting to me at least to see that sneaking into what's supposed to be mainstream formats. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. I suppose we can move on to slightly more positive news. Actually, a lot more positive. I don't know why I said slightly. (laughs) And that is um, in Victoria, a bill has been introduced in the parliament um, that's bringing us closer to having a treaty. And that would be, if that happens, it's still going to be a long while to go, but we would be the first state in Australia to achieve that. And I believe a fact that we discovered when we were researching that really shocked me was that we're the only Commonwealth country to not have any sort of treaty with our Indigenous people. Really? What's the treaty like? What's its meat? Like, what is it kind of advocating for? Um, so the treaty would be between Indigenous, I guess, elders and um, communities in Victoria. And basically so, so the actual legislation hasn't been put to forward. It's oh, okay. the, the legislation starts the conversation. So right. basically uh, what was on the floor of the parliament said that we would have a body made up of 30 traditional owners um, who would design a framework for future treaty negotiations. So we're really starting all the way from step one. That's amazing though. Mm. But you know, these are the first steps. These are Baby stuff. steps. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, we're only, what, 
200 years behind New Zealand's <laughs> like it's Just a little late, but still, yeah. better late than never. No, absolutely. And it's really cool to see a state taking initiative where the federal government has just failed time and time again to do that. So. Mm. Especially after the failure of um, uh, the voice in parliament, which was knocked back after mm. the Uluru Statement by yeah. Malcolm Turnbull earlier this year, or was it last year? Oh, I think it was last year, but Last now. year, yep. yeah. So, you know... I mean, if the federal government isn't going to do it, at least the states are building up the basis. Uh, but obviously this is something that's going to take quite a while and we'll have to watch it and keep an update on that. Mm. And um, it has been a pretty, I guess, inclusive sort of thing. And I believe more than 7,000 Victorian Aboriginal community members actually were involved. So they're really not... It's good that it's not like, we think you need this, but actually getting the community involved and hopefully making a treaty that both sides would be happy with in the yeah end. well I hope it puts pressure on the federal government as well because um yeah it was I remember pretty disgusting last year when Clinton Pryor was an indigenous activist who was crossing Australia um on, on foot to go to Canberra and address his concerns um Malcolm Turnbull pretty much refused to talk to him and Bill Shorten did talk to him but then after he left um completely lied about what they'd spoken about online and said that he'd come to talk about recognition which is the opposite of what he was there to talk about um, which is really just disturbing to see these voices being silenced time and time again. So, yeah, it would be really, really cool if this, like, starts some kind of momentum in Australia. It does. It's a very promising movement, I feel. Yeah. Mm. Obviously, we'll have to wait till the substantive materials of the um, actual treaty come to light, um, and we'll just have to w- hope that it doesn't turn into another Uluru statement where, mm. you know, they did the same comprehensive process. They did the whole mm. going to every Indigenous community and getting their opinions and having the conversation with them, culminating years of research and work with the community to the Uluru statement, which, as we said, just got knocked back almost within months of it being declared. Mm. I mean, I suppose the advantage of it happening so late literally is that they really have a lot of case studies around the world to look at to see what works and what doesn't. So hopefully yeah, that's a good point. it's something that actually is substantive, like Zizi just said, and not just a cursory, like, look at us, we're doing good. I don't know. Is it almost, I'm curious, because I heard um, in Australia, you know, Indigenous people, unlike in New Zealand, where there's a lot of commonality, it's very different from community to community. Yes, Is I it heard that. Almost good that it's happening in the state to state level. And do you think other states and territories would follow suit? And it's. I, I think we do need to recognise the diversity within um, the Australian community. Um, obviously, there's going to be a huge variety of experiences from people who are living in metropolitan areas to people who are really rural, and of course, people who are living in territories or states. The experience is going to be really different. Um, mm. My concern when it comes to state-by-state progress, Mm -hmm. um, especially after we have done all the work to get each community's opinion, the problem with state-to-state is that there's always one state that is slow. Mm. (laughs) Yes, always. That's That's Um, always happening. And the benefit of a federal government policy is also that the Australian government recognises that this is a treaty that we need to have rather than, you know... So there aren't, like, laggard states who just decide not to do it. Exactly. Like, if there was a federal action, they could they wouldn't have that option yeah but i agree with you maggie i do i don't know about new zealand or other countries but i don't think there's as much commonality in australia's indigenous like communities i think each one of them has a a, a different way of doing things a different language so i think it's great that they're trying to cater to that and i do hope that other states will follow suit but who knows and there's definitely as you said going to be a slow state i can definitely feel that there's benefits to going state by state because you get to address the issues more specifically but 
yeah, I, I think because we have had the national campaign to get the treaty process together, which was in, you know, the Uluru Statement, mm-hmm. that would have been the better option. I think state by state is what we have until we have a better mm. <laughs> process and more unified process. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, of course, um, on this issue, we're also looking to see if you guys have um, any opinions on this and you can let us know at SinRepresent on Twitter or facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. So now we're going to be moving on to talk a little bit about the corporate taxes. So um, does someone want to jump us into that? Yeah, so it's been a bit of a blow to the government when they failed to push through their proposed tax cuts to corporate uh, businesses bigger than... It's quite large businesses that were only going to get affected by the tax cut. Um, They wanted to create a 5% reduction in corporate taxes. They tried to push it through the Senate, and the Senate, as a crazy bunch of crossbenchers, just couldn't move it fast enough. Um, The the bill will actually be re- um, brought back in, I believe, May. That's when right. And if it doesn't pass then, they'll bring it back in June. Mm. Yeah. So we've got a couple more opportunities, <laughs> but this is still pretty devastating. Yeah. And it, it just shows um, how unpopular, I guess, this uh, tax bill is. I mean, it hasn't created a lot of um, kind of popular appeal outside of, I guess, the Liberal Party headquarters. And they're really struggling to bring those crossbenches across. Well, it seems to be uh, very much a game of not which crossbencher loves my tax plan, but which one can I trade something else for it. Um, so there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of enthusiasm. Actually, I heard something funny that um, David Lionhelm, who is the libertarian, uh, sole libertarian in um, the Senate, was actually really disappointed because he signed off on it immediately, of course, because he loves tax cuts, and then was upset when he realised that everyone else was getting special deals and he hadn't gotten any special deal because... He just liked it on its own merits. Yeah, I think this raises a very interesting issue when you're dealing with so many minor parties. Is like, what are you? What what do you get the most advantage of when you vote for a minor party? Is it the fact that they can, you know, hold up tax reform in order to, you know, get some concession for Western Australia or Tasmania or whatever state they're from, or is it that they? represent a political ideology that is distinct from the other major parties. Yeah. And with Lionhelm, he is a distinct political phenomenon, whatever you make of him as a politician, but he represents a very specific ideological perspective that isn't represented by the major parties. But, you know, the say the Nick Xenathon party, where they're very willing to horse trade for small concessions for well, South yeah, Australia. ideology is South Australia, which is a unique ideology for sure. <laughs> I mean, yeah. is your ideology, I represent my state and the interests of my state and I will do anything to further whatever small concession I can get, or is it some underlying ideological belief like yeah. Linehelm represents? Well, I think it's like, I guess uh, Linehelm's kind of backed into a corner on that one in that it would look incredibly strange for him to say, I conditionally support tax cuts when mm. everyone knows he unconditionally supports them. Um, but yeah, it makes it more complicated with people like Darren Hinch and people like uh, Tim Storer, who was a Nick Xenophon player, who replaced uh, Sky Kokoschke more when she got kicked out re-citizenship um, drama. Um, and then he fell out with Xenophon team and is now an independent. Um, and he seems to be now the main person that the whole decision is resting on uh, assuming that Darren Hinch comes around eventually. 
um, which is really interesting because he doesn't seem to have a very strong view on it either way. Um, and he's, uh, his commentary has just mainly been that he's not sure that um, it's good for the, I guess, fiscal budget to have this um, big tax cut and whether the spending would, might be better in infrastructure. So he doesn't seem to have... He's from a business background. Um, he doesn't seem to have a strong stance on it, but it seems to be sort of like this... I don't want to say nobody, but not a not a particularly renowned figure who's been thrust into this situation. I mean, that is the nature of our Senate at the moment. I believe there was a former One Nation Party member who basically quit as soon as he got into power, as yeah. he replaced... Um, oh, what was the climate denier's name? Oh, um... Malcolm Roberts. Malcolm Roberts, yes, of course. Uh, as soon as Malcolm Roberts was revealed to be her dual citizen, he came in, came into Parliament, and renounced his ties to One Nation as soon as he got the ballot. Yeah. Um, and so we have a lot of people who seem to have been there almost accidentally. So I kind of understand why they are doing so much horse trading, because they may not have had a solid like ideological foundation they've joined a party which they've since broken up from yeah and so now they're there to represent their constituents yeah well, which is a weird thing to it's see weird as well politics. i think for tim story because it seems like such a huge federal issue is somewhat coming down to nick xenophon team beef which is like not something that is like a regular thing in australian politics but he's fallen out with the nick xenophon team so it seems to be that one of his motivators is will he vote in line with that party line regardless or does he want to defy them? Mm. Um, so there's also this personal element coming into it, which is really unusual. Um, anyway, for, I guess, my sake, I hope that this does not pass and that he decides to vote with his party regardless um, because, yeah, it's not a very popular reform and I think there's a reason for that. Yeah, well, the reason for its unpopularity is because it's seen as giving, uh, what is the quote, the big end of town, a big cut, <laughs> uh, to use politicians speak. Um, the coalition has tried to sell it to the public as a form of, like, circular way to increase wages. Uh, do you guys think this message is landing? No. Um, I think, you know how you said that it was unpopular for the big end of town, so to speak? Wouldn't that make it kind of popular for kind of the everyday person? Because then it could be a sign that they could have used that that part of the budget for other things that appeal to people more, like infrastructure or healthcare. I feel like it could be popular in that sense. As in because the coalition isn't spending it? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think there is that element where, like, most Australians look at 3.5... Sorry... $35.6 billion mm. not going into infrastructure or education or Yeah, exactly. And are quite critical of that. But I think also there's this um, innate, like, uh, I want to say egalitarian, but I'm not sure that's the right word, where, like, Australians don't like people who are really, 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 really successful. To become even more successful. Exactly. With the help of the government. I agree with that. Yeah. And so there's this argument Maybe that it's a whole tall poppy syndrome thing. Maybe. I don't know. I'm just estimating here. It it is important to note that this isn't targeting individuals. It's targeting corporations. And I think a lot of Australians are quite um, resentful of the fact that a lot of corporations don't seem to be paying their proper taxes in Australia. Um, Of course, you know, we've had a whole series of revelations about, you know, Google and Apple and and a whole lot of other corporations who have found to be paying very little tax legally. There have been a lot of those jokes of, like, 
you know, whatever percent less than zero is still zero <laughs> and all of that, which I think is quite true and sad. But um, I think it's also interesting because it seems to be part of a, a wider trend of Labor tacking left in the lead up to the federal election, which is quite interesting to see in terms of like the um, whole thing with the franking credits that was sort of an attack on, I guess, uh, higher earners and then now this, um, with the coalition coming out with this, that it seems to really, and also with the union change the rules campaign building up, like there really seems to be like economic policy coming back to the forefront of Ospol for a bit, which is so nice after like a year of just like trivial nonsense. It could be interesting, especially in the lead up to the May budget, um, that we are seeing a really solid debate on economic principles. And I think Labor does have a good position on campaigning on inequality in Australia. Um, because, of course, we've seen wage growth stagnate and now the Turnbull government seems to only be you know, giving tax exemptions to really, really wealthy com- companies, which, you know, don't doesn't look good. It doesn't have good optics on the ground. No, and I don't think that um, the idea that this is sort of trickle-down thing will happen will actually fly with many Australians. I think most people have a, a basic understanding that when these company tax cuts happen, they don't actually benefit them. The argument that the coalition is pushing, which m- may be um, kind of more in line with, less in line with trickle-down economics, more in like economic rationale, is like when a company has more money, it has more money to expand. Yeah. And in, so in s- expanding, they can create more jobs. And that's the line that they're pushing. So while they're not increasing the wages of existing workers, they're creating more wages for people who don't currently have yeah. high wages. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> more people being paid a low amount of money might have an economic element to it, but I think you know, raising the minimum wage is probably something that would look better for the Australian public. Yeah, definitely. I agree as well. Hmm. Um so th- let us know what you think you can um about the sexy topic of corporate taxes mm-hmm. um you can tweet us at at sinrepresent or follow us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash represent uh it's now time for our famous segment this is represents head to head awesome so now we are going to be talking a little bit about some of the biggest was it not scandals, but... Um, Cheaters. Oh, the biggest cheaters. Yes, that's right. Um, I suppose if you're from Australia, I think the one we're going to kick off of, kick off with sorry, is um, what's been all over the news, and that is the cheating when it comes to cricket. And um, so a little bit of context on that is, if you haven't been following it, is I believe the incident was carried out by a junior player, Bancroft, and then it was authorised by the vice-captain, Warner, and um, Steve Smith, who's the captain, knew it was happening and didn't really do anything to stop it. So what Warner actually did was, on the field, he tried to scuff up a um, ball by rubbing sandpaper over oh it. Oh, my yeah. God. Yep, and then I think the reason you do that, I believe, is something about making it really hard to hit or something like that. Yeah, it somehow affects the spin mm, of like the ball. Makes the it not as clean and more erratic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I quote, it can help fast bowlers produce unplayable deliveries or something like that. So yeah. 
Um, so they tried to do that, and it happened under you know like cameras caught what was happening. Yeah. I st- that part still gets me like they didn't why even try you? and hide it. Like I at least cheat properly. Oh my I god! Think he, he when you tried, look at the look on his face when he's carrying it out, it really looks like he thinks he's being subtle to me. Like that's what it <laughs> looks like. like to oh me, my god! He's sort of like deadpan. Like oh yeah, I'm just like showing my hand in my pants, normal, normal <laughs> lifestyle, and like. It's so clear that it's like he's doing some enormous manoeuvre. Like, no one can see me. I'm being so discreet. But no, not at all. I can't believe they thought they'd get away with it. That's a baffling thing to me. It's not that they did it, but like... He's caught on camera doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And originally they tried to pass it off as yellow tape, right? But it was actually sandpaper. And they tried to get less punishment for it by saying it's less bad. Really? Is that why it was? I assume so. Otherwise, why would you say, it was just tape? Like... Yeah. I'm trying to mitigate the yeah, situation. Yeah, sandpaper, I guess, is a more aggressive substance. substance. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, all three players have been suspended from international and domestic cricket for different amounts of time. I believe Warner and Smith for 12 months and Bancroft for nine. And they also have to undertake 100 hours of voluntary service in community cricket. Um, wow. That's yeah. like a jail for cricket players. Community <laughs> cricket. I think, like, even if they go back after all this time, like, how will they be able to play in front of the crowds again? Well, like, like they're not getting a good reception in Australia. Not I mean, at all. This is, I hate to use this, like, the great shame of Australia <laughs> at the moment. Like, we have lost a lot of international credibility, not because of all the dodgy stuff that our politicians are doing, but because our cricketers are cheating in South Africa. Yeah. I, I mean, it does speak to how um, we are a sporting nation and we take these things really to heart. But also, like... And we're, we pride ourselves on be- being good sportsmen and having good sportsmanship, and exactly. something like this happens. And yeah. I think also to, for it to happen in cricket is also another black mark against our name, because cricket is the... Um, the uh, kind of non-confrontational, it's very proper. Isn't it meant to be like very gentlemanly, the yeah, gentlemanly sport? and you're meant to be quite um, respectful yeah. while playing it. You know, something like rugby, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no one would even care. It's like, uh, again. Like, I'm pretty sure you're not even allowed to, like, uh, make contact with your opposition team because that's seen as, you know... Being too uncouth. rough. <laughs> I think I saw the point made in you, Matilda, that, like, so much of our slang and language comes from like about fairness comes from cricket like that's just not cricket or like using a straight oh. bat and things like that I it's didn't like even it's know so that. ingrained in us that like yeah. cricket is about sportsmanship mm. um, which like I don't know I've been seeing all these takes this week that are like wow we're so mad about the cricket and we're not mad about Manus Island or like whatever other thing which like I sort of understand but I feel like it's different because people don't expect good moral behaviour from our politicians and they do expect it from cricketers mm. so when Politicians cheat, no one's like, this has never happened, I'm devastated, which is obviously Mm. how people feel now. And and I feel like people that do sports, like, they will support the team no matter what, right? Like, if they lose, it's like, whatever, like, they're still my favourite team. Like, like, there was no need for it. Yeah, surely losing would be better. I guess they didn't think they'd get caught. Very yeah. Amazing. I feel like maybe it's just due to the fact that cricket is so, like, close to Australia's heart and, like, that's kind of, like, our... It's kind of like our one thing that we pride ourselves on. So mm, Exactly. But what are we putting head-to-head with this? I mean, this is not as uh, eye-catching and national conversation stimulating, but there was a bit of a scandal in the Victorian Parliament. Uh, they actually met um, on Good Friday, bucking usual poli- uh, parliamentarian trends. Uh, they met on Good Friday to vote on what is quite a controversial domestic uh, local issue about the reorganisation of the country fire authority. 
Uh, this is a bill that has sparked a lot of debate in Victoria because it comes in the wake of kind of like organisational structures after the Black Saturday bushfires and looking at how we should manage our huge bushfire situations. Um, it's kind of been on the table for quite some time um, and on Friday they were meant to do a second round of voting um, and two politicians from the Liberal Party had signalled that they wanted to leave uh, and because they wanted to be um, observe the religious ceremony of Good Friday. Um, and according to parliamentary tradition, uh, when two politicians leave, they can ask for two members of the opposing side to similarly leave so that the kind of ratio of for and against are maintained. Which I guess is a reciprocal thing because, like, uh, you know, then the next time that you have someone who's sick or having surgery or whatever other reason, you know that's not going to be a problem for you either. So it, it benefits both parties to go along with it. Except in this occasion. So what happened, which has caused a bit of controversy, is that the Liberal politicians left and they were paired with two Labour MPs. And then suddenly, when the vote came to the floor of the Parliament's upper house, they reappeared and they made their way down and they voted and it actually caused the legislation to be blocked. Um, so this kind of undermines a lot of kind of like parliamentary traditions and is quite, you know, controversial and could send a weird precedent. But um, of course, uh, that's not the only scandals that have happened this week. You can tweet us what you thought the biggest cheater was this week at at SinRepresent on Twitter or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. Um, you could always also let us know who you thought was worse. What was the worst move? Was it the cricket or the pear scandal mm-hmm. in the Victorian <laughs> Parliament? Yeah. Um, that's all now from SinRepresent. Awesome. And yeah, we'll be putting up a poll about that. And um, that is all we have time for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week, 3 to 4 p.m. on Sin Nation and streaming online on sin.org.au. Stay tuned for Veroni Hour. Uh, I'm Maggie. I'm Zizi. I'm Nikki. I'm Claudia. And, and remember, stay political. Stay political.